Well, I invite you this morning, church, to turn to Luke chapter 16. And we will begin our time in God's Word in verse 14 this morning. Luke 16 and verse 14. I was uh, told by Pastor Josh to let you know that uh, if you want to support uh, this youth ministry, there are some extra sub-sandwiches. And so if you don't have lunch plans, you can get in the queue after service. I think there are $7 each, and um, I'm sure they would be blessed to be able to give those to you. I also uh, want to just take a, a note before uh, a moment before we uh, come to this time in God's Word to thank uh, my brother Butch. Where are you, Butch? I know you're... Did you go home already? All right, that's like... He did. He didn't. He went home? All right, we could talk about Butch. Um, I, I remember it was uh, about four and a half years ago I was uh, interviewing uh, for uh, this uh, great position and honor that I have, and Butch was on that search committee, and, and I drove up about four hours... Uh, to come for that interview. They wanted to do it over the phone, but I, I'd much rather be in person. And so I drove up, and, and um, I was going to spend the night at Butch's house. And so after the interview, Butch says, hey, let, let me take you out to dinner. Um, now, it was a long interview. It was about three hours or so. They were just grilling me with questions after questions, and I was kind of unsure as to how I did. And I thought, okay, well, he's taking me out to dinner. That, that's um, awfully nice of him. And so we roll into McDonald's, okay? And... Uh, <laughs> And I get a dollar cheeseburger from my brother Butch. And um, what a great blessing that man is, let me tell you. And, um, but uh, he is indeed, all joking aside, been a true and rich blessing to me. And I trust to many of us. And we're thankful for his time as an elder in this church. Luke 16 and uh, verse 14. Hear now the word of God. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful now that we can consider your word and ask that you would help us and guide us. I am I am, and I, I trust this church is particularly thankful this morning for, for Butch and the years, six years he has served this church as one of his pastors, one of its elders, shepherding this church and guiding us. And praise you for him, Father. And we thank you for the work that he has done and the prayers he has offered and sacrifice he has given and the personal blessing that he has been to me. I give you praise for him, as I trust we do in our hearts this morning. And now help us to understand your word as we consider it. Guide us into truth for your glory and for our gain, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was early in the 1700s uh, when a French atheistic rationalist rose to acclaim. His name was Voltaire. And Voltaire, in addition to thinking deeply about political philosophy, was a fierce critic of Christianity. As a younger man, he focused most of his attacks on Christianity, directing them towards the clerical class in his day and pointing out the excess of the priesthood. But as he aged, uh, his, his furious attacks began to move away from Christians themselves and began to be directed at Jesus Christ himself, whom Voltaire considered to be a degenerate. Uh, he famously said, you have seen what one man, one, excuse me, you have seen what one Jew did to create Christianity. I will show you what one Frenchman will do to destroy it. And he went about his life trying to destroy Christianity. He had a particular great disdain for scripture. As a rationalist, he thought we have gone so far in our understanding of reason. We are now enlightened that we no longer need the Bible. In fact, Voltaire once famously, once again, uh, in, in great smugness, held up the Bible. And he said publicly, in a hundred years, this book will be forgotten 
and eliminate it. Voltaire died in 1728. After he died, his house was sold. And one of the great historical ironies, it was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society, (laughs) in which they used Voltaire's printing presses to print thousands of scriptures. They used Voltaire's old bedroom to store those scriptures for distribution. In a couple weeks, uh, Dave Murray and I are going to be traveling to Ghana. Uh, We're going there to teach. We'll spend all week teaching. We won't teach Voltaire. About 50 people or so will gather to hear us teach. They're not coming to hear Voltaire or Plato or Aristotle or any of the rest. You know what they're coming to hear? The Bible. The Bible. And it's just not in Ghana. It's all throughout Africa and South America and Asia and North America and even Europe. People are gathering in slums and alleyways and villages and cities all over this world to study not the philosophies of man, but to study the revelation of God. They're gathering to study Scripture. And the reason is, is Voltaire won't put your family back together. He won't deal with your past. He won't give you a hope for the future. Only God can do that. What all the wisdom of this world has been able to give to us cannot accomplish what God has clearly given to us in His Scripture. And I'll tell you, this is to great annoyance of our world. That the impact of Scripture continues to abound. That people still run to it and search it and spend their lives studying it. The world scorns Jesus in His day. As we see in this passage, the Pharisees ridiculing Him. And they continue to scorn what He taught in our day. The world will tell you, Today in this land, turn on the news, go to a a university, and they will tell you in just a little bit of time, this whole Christianity thing will blow over. It's fading away. It's dying in America. We are moving beyond Scripture, they will say. They will look at you Christians and say, don't you understand? You're on the wrong side of history. Get with the times. Another hundred years, they'll say. Maybe less. No one will be studying this book. It will all be eliminated. I told you this morning, Voltaire is dead. But the Bible lives. And it will continue to live and continue to impact lives as long as there are people upon this earth. Just as our Lord said in Luke 16 and verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. It's here Jesus gives us, in this passage, insight into the Word of God. He explains to us, I think, the purpose of the law and the preeminence of the law and gives us an example or the authority of the law. Now, I'm using the word law to talk about the Old Testament because that's the word that Jesus used. Right? We, We see that in verse 16, He calls it the law and the prophets. They didn't call it the Old Testament then because they didn't have a New Testament. They called it the old, the, the law and the prophets, the 39 books that make up our Old Testament. And then in verse 17, he'll just shorthand that and he'll refer to the law. Now, when Jesus says the law, you shouldn't think he's referring to the technical commands of the Old Testament, right? When he says the law, he's talking about the entire Old Testament. For instance, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, does not your law say, and then he quotes Psalm 82. So when he, when he talks about the law, he's saying it's all of the scripture that we have, just not the legal instruction and commands. I think that's helpful for us to understand. Because we come to places in the Bible and we read, for instance, in the psalmist where they say, Oh, how I love your law. Right? And I meditate on your law day and night. And your law is like sweeter to me than honey. And if we're thinking law equals Leviticus... We're going to get confused. Right? And so we say, well, you know, I read, I'm reading Leviticus this week with you, and I don't know. I I mean, it's interesting, but it's sweeter than honey to, to my lips. Uh, Meditate on Leviticus day and night. Right? We're thinking, what's wrong with us? Well, when, when he says the law, he's not just talking about Leviticus. Now, he is talking about Leviticus, but he's talking about the history and the the prophecies and the poetry and the proverbs and the Psalms and the histories. And he's saying it's all. So when we see, when we use this word law today, and we're going to use it a lot, I want you to think the entirety of the Old Testament. Now, I'll, I'll tell you before we get into this passage, that these five verses, 
You know, sometimes pastors, we have this, this phrase that when we, when we approach a text to preach, we call it wrestling with the scripture. And what, what we do in our office is we, we don't, we just don't pull the sermon off the shelf. We get the scripture out and we outline the scripture and we, we try to find key ideas in the scripture and see how it all fits together. We create an exegetical outline and then we take our outline of what this passage means and we move that to a homiletical outline, which is the sermon which you get on Sunday trying to think, how, what is this? I want to explain what it means. And I want to apply it to our lives. That's what I try to do every Sunday. So we wrestle with it. Well, I'll tell you, I wrestled with these five verses for about two weeks and I lost. Right? Okay. It just threw me on my back. And, and I, I'm not, this is a very difficult passage to understand. So may God help us. Um, we'll do our best this morning. But uh, it is a, a challenging passage here. Um, we, just to show us how this all begins. Of course, you remember last week, Jesus is dealing with stewardship issues. He's talking about our money. He's talking about our lives. We're saying we need to be generous with our resources in order to prepare for the future, if you remember last week. Well, the Pharisees hated that teaching. They hated this generosity um, religion that Jesus talks about. And the reason is because they love money, as you see in verse 14. The Pharisees were lovers of money. Um, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. See, the Pharisees loved money and therefore disagreed with pretty much everything Jesus ever taught about money. And, and, and instead, for them, money was a sign of God's blessing. And of course, money can be a sign of God's blessing. But what they assumed is if you are rich, then you must be God's favorite. That, that God must be blessing you, the rich people. You know, if you're good with God, God will make you rich. Now, I'm so glad that crazy theology is no longer with us, right? We've moved beyond that. But back then, they thought, well, okay, richness equals God's blessing. And Jesus shows up and says, no, that's not the case. In fact, he's about to give this incredible parable in the next passage, which God willing will consider next week, of this very rich man who ends up in hell. And this very, very poor man who ends up in heaven. And, and they, they hated that. Just like many people in the church today hate it when pastors talk about money. I say, the church always talking about money and get all bent out of shape because we're talking about, it's just money. It's just things. Why are we so troubled by that? Well, maybe because it touches a nerve. Maybe just like it touched a nerve with the Pharisees. They love money and Jesus saw it. Notice verse 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourself before men. But God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You see, they're ridiculing Jesus in order to justify themselves. You see, Jesus, they ridicule him. Jesus says, you're doing this just to justify yourself before each other. The, the, what, what they say is, listen, Jesus, the problem is not our use of money. The problem is you're a moron. Right? They're ridiculing. They're mocking. You're, you don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. So instead of repenting, they justify their behavior by trying to make Jesus foolish. It's e- you, know, you can imagine their critique. It's very easy for him to tell us to be generous with our money because he has none. Right? And Jesus, maybe if you were walking with God, you would have some money too, so you wouldn't be after our money. Right? Maybe that's what they're thinking. Right? And so they're mocking him. And he says, "You listen, you guys are just trying to justify yourself before each other in the sight of men. And Jesus is in a sense saying, look, you, you care what each other think, but what does God think about you? Have you thought about that? What does God think about your heart? He knows your heart, as he says in verse 15. In fact, he says, the very thing in which you are exalting, in which you are glorifying in, is an abomination to God. It's keeping you from God. Now, I want you to notice Jesus' love for them. I mean, these are people who are gathering together and mocking Jesus. They are greedy, self-righteous people ridiculing him. And what does he do? He doesn't just turn his back and walk away. He doesn't get, mock them in return. He tells them the truth. He tells them, he warns them. And, and I don't know, maybe there are some here today who would, who would mock some of what I have to share or mock what, some of what the Lord has to say and say, you know, this is silly. Let's get with the times. Maybe there's a, some of us have the heart of Voltaire in us. Do people really still believe all this, we might say? And I wonder if, if that's your heart, if you're just trying to justify yourself instead of letting God tell you what he thinks. In fact, I would suggest instead of listening to your own heart about what's important, it's best to listen to what God says is important, to listen to God's heart, which is found in Scripture, of course. 
And I think it's because of this, this discussion about our hearts that Jesus transitions there in verse 16 to the role of God's word, beginning with the purpose of the law. So first of all, consider with me the purpose of the law according to our Lord and Jesus in verse 16. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. So he says, the law and the prophets, that's okay, the Old Testament, right? Was up until John. He's talking about John the Baptist or John the baptizer. And then John is this transition. And Jesus says, since John has showed up, now what's happening? The kingdom of God is being preached. Okay, so what does all that mean? What does he mean the, the, the Old Testament was up until John? And I think what Jesus is doing is he's showing us what is the purpose of the law and the prophets. What's the purpose of the scripture? And the purpose of the scripture was to prepare us for the coming kingdom of God. To get us ready for the king and his kingdom. That we can look ahead and anticipate this this era. In fact, the Old Testament prepares us in a number of ways. It does, first of all, by showing us our sin, doesn't it? It shows us where we fail. The law and the prophets show us God's standard and show us what we are able to do. We're not able to keep his standard. In fact, we can't even keep our own standard, let alone God's standard. And this is what the laws and prophets is very helpful for. In fact, all religions, they, they take their scripture and what they do is they, they look at the scripture and say, this is my manual to get right with God. And so God says, do this and I'll do that and don't do this and I, and I won't do that. And if I do these things, then I could be right with God. The, the power of the Old Testament is, is to show us you'll never do those things. It's impossible. You can't keep those. Butch read for us the Ten Commandments. You, you and I haven't kept those today, I imagine, let alone our, the entirety of our life. Love your enemy. You've done that real well. No. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's found in Leviticus. Right? Haven't, well, I, said, I haven't murdered anybody. Well, Jesus lets us know that the real intent was not just killing somebody, but it is the, the thoughts of your heart. And we begin to look, let the law look at us, and we realize, man, we're, I am in trouble. In fact, many of us are, you know, we're reading through the Bible together as a church. And if you read through the Old Testament, do you think you're going to find a lot of people that actually keep God's standard? I mean, it's astonishing, isn't it? It's just like one failure after another. Just one person messing up after another person messing up until the whole nation is messing up and God actually sends them off into exile. See, the law and the prophets, they prepare us because they show us our sin, but they, they do another thing. They show us what we've lost. They show us the kingdom of God, what it was like in the early chapters of Genesis. The fellowship and the intimacy and the harmony in which we had, the peace and the joy. They show us what the kingdom was like and how we have lost it. Now, there are glimpses of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, and the promised land and God's presence, but it's mostly misery. A third way in which the law and the prophets help us, prepare us for, for uh, the, the kingdom of God is the promises of the Messiah. Right? We, we, we saw this even a couple weeks ago when we said all the Old Testament is about Him. It's about who Jesus is and what He's done and what He will do. And so the law and the prophets were to help us. And then John shows up, right? Finally, John emerges and you got all these Pharisees in their long robes and their religious bling bling and, and they're all very happy with themselves. And John shows up, this crazy guy, this big old hairy brute living in the desert with a camel hair onesie with, with bugs sticking in his, his beard. And he says, let me tell you about God, right? And people start flocking to him. And what does he say? Repent, all of you. You're falling short. You're not keeping his standard. But he's coming. In fact, look, he said, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John gets us ready, and then here comes Jesus. And Jesus, what? He begins to preach, according to Luke 16, verse 16, the good news of the kingdom of God. Good news, as you know, is just the word gospel. So Jesus does not show up with more law. He doesn't show up, with, that is, with more commands. He doesn't show up with advice. He doesn't show up with instructions. He shows up primarily not with things to do, but news to believe. What is that news? That the kingdom of God has finally come. Turn over to Luke 17. Let me show you Jesus also having a conversation with the Pharisees. Luke 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, 
He answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Verse 21, Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He says, It's here. It's already here. I've brought it. Mark begins his gospels by saying in chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And then what does he do? He begins to heal. He begins to reverse death. He begins to calm creation. He begins to rebuke our enemies. He begins to to restore people into relationships. Why? Because he's showing them what the kingdom is like. These are not just naked displays of power. Jesus never elevates 10 feet off the ground and say, look what I could do. He never blows off the top of a mountain. He never flies around the temple, right? He's not just doing these naked displays of power. He's actually showing them through his miraculous activity what the kingdom of God is like. It's a restoration. It's, re- it's a return to Eden. It, see, the gospel is not simply God taking care of your sin problem so that you can live forever with him in heaven. Though that, that includes the gospel. The gospel is far more than just dealing with your sin problem. The, the gospel is reuniting you with your creator and, and by extent reuniting you with one another and even reuniting you with this, the, with this world. That's why Jesus would say to you, come to me, right? All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come, let's, let's come back to Eden. There's a restoration, right? And we begin, once we begin to, and once we enter into that kingdom by faith in Christ, you know what? We begin to taste, get a foretaste. Not the full completion, but a taste of what life is supposed to be like. How, how we're being loved by our creator and wanting to follow him and to live for him. See, the, the law and the prophet's purpose was to prepare us for this coming king, this coming kingdom, and, and he says, people are streaming into it. You see that there at the end of verse 16? Back in Luke 16, he says, um, and everyone forces their way into it. They're forcing their way in. Why? Because they see their need. See, the Pharisees don't see their need. They look at, they look at the scripture and say, this is my manual, things to do. They think they're doing pretty well. They pat themselves on the back. They have no need for forgiveness. They have no need of repentance. They have no need of this king. But it's those who see their need and know their sin, that the, the, the law, the, the scripture has done its work in their heart, that they, what are they doing? Jesus says they're forcing their way into the kingdom of God, right? They're, they're barging in through faith in Jesus. No, it's not instruction. It's news to believe and they believe it. I love how he puts it there. They force their way in. He's saying the gates are open. People are pressing on in. They continue to do so today. They're streaming in from all over this world. It reminds me when Allegra and I were on our honeymoon about 20 years ago this summer. And we were in London. And we thought it would be fun to take the, uh, the subway in London. It's uh, what they call the tube. Is that right, uh, uh, Erica? Yeah. And, and, and so there we were in rush hour. And we're at, and there's this mass of people in front of us, and then soon a mass of people behind us. And we're thinking, okay, it'll be about three or four trains before we could get onto our train. Um, but Londoners aren't like that. The train opens, and people, the you know, doors open, and we're going in whether we want to or not. Right? And you know, not not we made it way in because people line after line after line of us are forcing their way into this subway, right? And that's kind of the picture I have of Jesus saying people are, are, are forcing their way into the kingdom of God. Now, it's not like a Black Friday sale at Walmart, okay? We're not trampling each other. But there's this eagerness to get in. I wonder, is there eagerness in your heart for God? I feel like so many people just kind of grow up in the church and they're just so passive. They shrug their shoulders. Eh, I don't know. Maybe I'll go in next year. And it's here, week after week, God inviting them by His blood-bought grace, and they just keep putting Him at arm's length. I mean, what more could you want? I mean, he's, he's opening Eden back to us. The sword that barred us from Eden has been sheathed in the Son of God that we might have entry back into the kingdom. The law and the prophets is to prepare us for that. That's what it's for for. Of course, that raises the question, okay, well, if the Old Testament is to prepare us for the coming king and the coming kingdom, then do we no longer need the law and the prophets, right? Then what's the point of the Old Testament? And I almost think Jesus anticipates that objection because he begins to move from the purpose of the law to the permanence of the law. Look in verse 17. 
The Lord says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus says, no, no, no. The law, the old covenant, the the Old Testament, excuse me, will never pass away. And this is, we find this incredible statement here in verse 17 on Jesus' understanding of the scripture in his day. And I just want to ask two questions about verse 17. What, what is, what does he mean by it? What, why? What, what does he mean that the law will never pass away? And secondly, why will it not pass away? Okay. I, I think what, what he's saying here is he's giving us this incredible statement on his understanding of the divine inspiration of the Bible. He says it's easier for creation to pass away than the law to pass away or become void or, or to become useless. So creation, heaven, earth, all of nature can pass away, but scripture can't. So what do we learn about Jesus' understanding of scripture? Right? Scripture's not nature. It's not natural. It's supernature to Christ. It, it is supernatural. Some people say, you know, I think the Bible's a good book, but it's a human book. I'll tell you, you may think that, but Christ did not. He says all of, all of us can pass away, but I'll tell you, God's word will remain. He affirms what we call the divine inspiration of the Bible. And now just not to get too seminarian on you, but he actually affirms the plenary inspiration of the Bible. Plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. Which means that not only is the Bible God's word, but every part of the Bible is God's word. Every part of the Bible is inspired. In fact, in the King James, you know that parallel passage. Some of you would quote the, 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 it from Matthew, the King James and Matthew. Not one jot or what? Tittle, he says, will pass away. Here he says, not one dot will pass away. The dot is not a letter. It's a hook on, it's a, like a little line on a letter. So we might think for us, you, you know, you make a cue and then at the end of your cue, you make that little hook going one way. But if you reverse the hook, it kind of looks like a G, right? That's what he's talking about. Just not, not a, see, Jesus isn't saying, listen, the Bible's the word of God. The Bible's inspired. He is saying that, but he's not just saying that. Nor is he saying, listen, every sentence of the Bible is inspired by God. Nor is he saying every word of the Bible is inspired by the word of God. Nor is he saying every letter of the Bible is inspired by the word of God. He's saying every part of every letter is inspired by the word of God. It is it is all inspired by God. I wonder, is that how you view the Bible? That this is the infallible, inspired Word of God? You know, some people object, don't they? And they say, well, you know, I believe parts of the Bible. I believe like the big concepts, but we can't believe every part of it, right? We've outgrown it, we say. We've made progress, we say. I like parts of it, but some are just, you know, it's a little primitive. It's out of date, we might say. And I don't know if that's your heart, but let's just be clear here this morning. Jesus is very clearly not saying the concepts of the Bible are good, but we could get rid of the small parts. He's actually saying heaven and earth will pass away before even one part becomes void. In fact, I would challenge people who want to dismiss the Bible by saying that you can't really... Maybe you can, but I don't know how. You can't follow Jesus... And not accept his view of scripture. Now I'm not saying that faith in scripture saves you. Faith in Jesus clearly saves you. But, but I don't know how it's consistent to say, okay, I follow Jesus, but I'm going to disregard some of his teachings. I'm going to put aside, I like Jesus generally, but some of the things he says I don't like. Well, if you ever have an encounter with someone like that, I, th- I would encourage you to ask them, well, wh- why don't you like them? And I think they'll probably tell you, well, I, my, you know, it just doesn't sit well with me. Or I have these deep convictions in my heart that kind of contradict what Jesus is saying. And so what we're doing is we're, we're elevating our own convictions over Scripture. And we're saying everything I don't like personally, I'll just disregard. And I'll only like the parts that I like. In other words, God exists, His Word exists just to amen my heart's desires. And everything that I don't like, we'll just say is, is outdated and, and outmoded and will just pass away. Well, if that's the case, how, do you, how does God ever really speak to you? How does He ever challenge you and contradict you and offend you even if you just dismiss the things you don't like? I think we're just making God in our own image when we do that. I would suggest you if we're going to follow Jesus, 
We need to follow the word in which Jesus based his entire life upon. His will was conformed to the will of God. His mind was, his heart was. He's on the cross. He's quoting Psalm 22, Psalm 35. He's marching up the Calvary. He's quoting to Hosea, to the weeping widows. He's, he's, he's constantly saying, it is written, it is written. It's his entire heart. He believes in the inspiration of God's word. So that's what he means. Okay, now here's the question. I still haven't answered why is the, is the Old Testament still important for us if it all pointed to the coming kingdom? Why do we still need it if it's already done its job to get us ready for Jesus? And let me give you two reasons. There are more than two reasons, but let me give you two reasons this morning why we still need the Old Testament. The first reason is that the Old Testament helps us to understand Jesus. It helps us to understand who Jesus is and what he has done. There's a parallel passage in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, um, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. I've come to complete them. I've, I've come to, to fill them up. So when we think about the Old Testament, we could think about Jesus has come to fill that. Now, I, I, if I can, I, I'm going to give us an object lesson this morning, if that's Okay. Um, now, I do this every two years or so, and they're, they're generally pretty lame, um, but, but the, and this one's lame too, um, but uh, the thing about object lessons is everybody pays attention, right? And in fact, it, I could challenge you, try not to pay attention to me for about the next four minutes. It will be hard um, because you'll think, what is he doing with that coffee mug? Okay, so I brought a coffee mug uh, from my house. This is, I guess, one of my girls' coffee mug. It's got a, a pony on it. We, we start our girls early on, on their coffee. Um, but let, pretend for a moment that this coffee mug represents the Old Testament. Okay? The coffee mug represents the law and the prophets. Now, what's a coffee mug good for? I mean, you could look at it and say, well, that's a, that's a very nice pony, or I mean, you could put a pen in it or something like that. But the primary purpose of the coffee mug is to bring you the coffee, right? And so if the coffee mug represents the Old Testament, guess what the coffee represents? Jesus. Amen? No one? All right. All right, thank you. And so just like the coffee mug brings to me coffee, that's delicious, right? So the Old Testament brings to us Jesus, brings to us an understanding of who he is. Now, what happens, for instance, let's say we do this. Let's say we take away the coffee mug. Now, we still have coffee, don't we? But we have, I mean, how are we going to get it? I mean, we could do this, but that, that's going to hurt, right? And we could maybe pour some into our hands. It's going to be hard to get, to get the coffee. So the, the mugs exists in order to help us to get the coffee, just as the Old Testament exists to help us to get Jesus. See, when the Old Testament has come and says, I want, God says, I want you to see what fills it up. It's about Jesus. It's about who he is and what he's done and what he's like and what he will do. Right? I mean, I mean after all, what is a Messiah? What's a Messiah? What's a temple? What's a priest? What's a sacrifice? Who is this David I keep hearing about? What does he mean by son of man? What is the Passover? And how does he fulfill it? And on and on and on. It all helps us to understand Jesus. See, you will, you will have a very hard time to, to get a hold of Jesus unless, unless you have the Old Testament. And at the same time, if you, if you take away Jesus and you still have the Old Testament, well, it's not very helpful at all. It's not doing its job, right? The Old Testament exists primarily to show us who Christ is, that we might understand him. So when we're reading the scripture through together as a church this year, we're reading Leviticus this week, understand Leviticus is not just about the sacrifices in which the Israelites made when they were brought into the promised land. It's telling us about who Jesus is, and he's the sacrifice, and he fulfills the day of atonement, and on and on and on. It's about Christ, the point of every story in the Old Testament, and, and every figure, and every ceremony, and, and, and every priest is to get us ready for Christ. See, the Old Testament, all the Bible is not about you. It's about Him. And we read the Bible not first to find out what we will do, 
But we read the Bible first to find out what he has done and what he will do. Now, I'll be honest. There was a second reason I had for doing this object lesson. I've always wanted to see if I could drink coffee and preach at the same time, right? So it was kind of, this was a lifeless thing I just checked off. So I appreciate you bearing with me. Okay. So one reason why we still need it, it brings us an understanding of Jesus. But there is a second reason we still need the Old Testament. And we need it to know how to live. Now, I, now I've said over and over again, you've heard me, the Bible is primarily not about what you should do, but who God is and what he has done. And yet, it does tell us how to live, doesn't it? He gives us commands. They are read for us, some of them, this morning. The commands, as our brother Butch testified, are for our good. See, God loves us too much to get rid of the law. It would be like a parent who said, listen, kids, eat whatever you want. Play video games all day long. You don't need to go to school. And that may sound like freedom for a year or two, but before you know it, you're 45 in your parents' basement playing your Nintendo. And it's, it's destruction. You don't know how to get out of that situation. How do I, how do I escape from that? See, the, the law is for our good. When we come and we live in the kingdom of God, we live under God's rules as recorded in His Word. In fact, and I would suggest, as I've told you in the past, I mean, how is it that you love someone? You do what pleases them. Well, what pleases God? Obedience. Heartfelt obedience pleases God. Doing His commands. You love God by loving your enemies. You love God by cherishing your spouse and not taking His name in vain. Listen, His commands are not busy work. They're not just a bunch of things to do. His commands are who He is. It's what He values. And what God values will not change. I'll tell you, heaven and earth will pass away before God says, I like dishonesty and injustice. It shows us who He is. It shows us how to live. It shows us how we can follow Him. In fact, He gives us an example. Thirdly, consider the authority of the law in verse 18. He talks about how the law still has a role in our life. And then I think what verse 18 is doing is giving us an example of where the law is impacting us. He says in verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, he, he of course, could have chosen a less controversial law to talk about. Um, but the reason he chose this, I believe, is because divorce was an epidemic in Jesus' day. Uh, not unlike our day. Divorce was rampant. Divorce was permitted by the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, listen, you want a divorce? You know, make a little donation to our ministry. We'll take some verses out of context and let you have your divorce. And, and so Jesus says, okay, let's, he wants to talk about how the law is still authoritative in our life. And he uses this verse in particular. Of course, this is not Jesus' full teaching on divorce and remarriage. That would be found in Matthew 19. And I, I'm going to invite you to turn over there to Matthew 19. Uh, uh, we don't have time to actually fully develop this, and, and that would take quite some time. But I want to show you this morning um, from Matthew 19 um, how they were abusing divorce and what God intends for them, and in particular how the Old Testament helps us even on an issue like this. So Matthew 19, that's eight, page 824 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along there. In verse 3, it says, The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Right? So they say, Listen, can't... Can we divorce our wives for any reason? Now, you notice they're testing Jesus. They, are, I think, already know what he's going to answer, and they got a kind of follow-up question. We'll see that in a second. But notice Jesus' answer is very helpful for us. Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read? Read what? <laughs> the Old Testament. He says, I'll tell you what it is, but let's, let's just understand where the authority comes from. Have you not read the law and the prophets, in particular, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Read your Bible to understand how you're supposed to live, silly Pharisees. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's quoting Genesis 2:24, verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So they say, can we divorce for any reason? And Jesus says, man, read the Bible. God has made you one. You can't tear that apart. No way. Now notice their response, verse 7. Here's the, here's the trap that they think they got him. 
Then they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? So, well, Mo- Moses, Moses let us have divorces. Jesus answers in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus says, listen, in, in Moses' day, people's hearts were hard. I think just like today, to be honest. Um, and, and what people did, they said, well, I know what God tells me to do. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't care anyways. I don't care. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this relationship. I'm sending him away. I'm sending her away. And they, in, in that case, they would kick their wives out. Now, when you kick your wife out of the house because your heart is hard and you're not going to do what God tells you to do, what is your wife supposed to do in Moses' day? She has no land. She has no job. She has no skills. She has no money, right? She, she can't do anything to support her. She can't even get another husband because, according to God, she's still married. And because this is happening... Right? It, Moses said, if you're going to do this, even though it's sin, and, and you don't care because your hearts are hard, at least give her a certificate of, of divorce. Not because God doesn't love marriage, but because God loves helpless women. And he is finding a way for them to at least go on with their life and find another husband so that they can be provided for. See, the Pharisees said, well, okay, divorce is okay. Moses was okay with it. And Jesus says, no, it's never been that way. Marriage is intended by God for life. And it will not pass away. It's not going to end God's understanding. In, in fact, it seems, if you look here in Matthew 19 or Luke 16, that if you're divorced, in some sense, God still considers you married. That's why if you marry After you have divorced, God understands that to be an act of adultery. Or if you've never been divorced, but you marry someone who has been divorced, that too is an act of adultery. Now, this only applies when one is divorced for unbiblical reasons. Sadly, there are two biblical reasons in which divorce and remarriage is permitted by Scripture. One will be adultery. And according to Matthew 19, we just saw that. The other will be abandonment. You see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so God says, um, if you get divorced um, for any other reason and remarry, that's adultery. You say, well, why doesn't Jesus teach us that here in Luke 16? Well, the point that Jesus is giving here in Luke 16 is not his full teaching on divorce. It's an, he's using it as an example to show us the authority of God's word. Saying, listen, if you, if you cheat on your spouse or you destroy your marriage, you don't, you don't get another one, God says. That was it. In fact, the Bible says God hates divorce, doesn't it? Malachi 2, I think verse 15 or verse 14. God hates divorce. Let's be clear, though. The Bible says God hates divorce and never says God hates divorcees. I think divorcees hate divorce. I don't know anybody that likes divorce. Maybe, maybe some lawyers, but that's about it. I mean, divorce is nasty and it's terrible. And the reason for this is because marriage is sacred to God. Marriage is, by God, designed to show the world God's love for us. That's why in the Old Testament we see God refer to sin repeatedly as adultery. Right? God understands his, his relationship with his people to be similar to the relationship between a man and his wife. In fact, we see in one time in the Old Testament, God has his prophet uh, named Hosea. And you think, okay, a prophet, this is a man of God. He's given himself completely to God. And he had. And God says, okay, I want you to go marry uh, this woman named Gomer. Okay? And you say, that's cruel. Let me do, right? I've never seen a fetching woman named Gomer before. Um, but he has to go marry Gomer. And even beyond that, Gomer is a prostitute. And not was a prostitute, not a repentant prostitute, but is a prostitute. And so Hosea marries Gomer. And what does Gomer do? She goes back to work. Okay? And she's off sleeping with other men. And God says in Hosea 3.1, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Why? Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they run to other gods. Show them by your love with this adulterous woman my steadfast and unmovable love for 
you. That's marriage. It's not primarily about you. It's about God. That's why we get to the book of Ephesians, that great passage on marriage. He says, the men do this, husbands do this, wives do this. And then he ends and says, okay, secret, it's not really about marriage. This is a mystery is profound for what I'm saying refers to Christ and the church. Testify to God's love for us by how we love one another. See, but what we do is we come and say, well, that's, it's just not modern, man. Things have changed, man. That's, divorce is now okay and sexual orientation. I mean, we've got things are different. Sex before marriage. And it's all, it's all different now. It's almost like we go to God and say, you know, I was reading your law, but I have some suggestions. Um, you know, can we update this a little bit? And God says, listen, be very careful. Heaven and earth will, not, will pass away before I stop caring about my intent for marriage. Is your marriage a reflection of the love of God? Do you have an attractive marriage? That may be hard. And yet God commands us to do hard things quite often. Be steadfast. Persevere. Look to heaven. God does not divorce His people. He does not look away. He says, I'm done with you. I'm walking away. No matter how bad we've been, no matter how many lovers we've had, He still loves us. And when we get a glimpse of that love, we, we realize who God is and we want to do what, what pleases Him. We, we want to love our spouse. We want to obey His law. In fact, do you know how to obey God's law? We'll end with this. There's really two ways to obey God's law. One is to keep it. The other is to pay its penalty. For instance, uh, you know, when you're driving home in just a little bit and you'll find you know, maybe you're on uh, Highway 7 out here and speed limit, is, I think, is 55, right? Though I'm not sure that's ever been driven. Um, but the speed limit is 55. And so there's, there's, there's a couple ways to, to satisfy that law. You can stay under 55 or you can pay the penalty when the policeman pulls you over. And either way, once you do one or the other, the law no longer has any claim upon you. What's amazing is Jesus Christ shows up and He, he keeps the law completely and then... He pays its penalty. He satisfies it twice. He drives the speed limit, and yet he's paying the penalty. Why? Because you and I have broken the law. He dies, the Bible says, under the curse of the law. He pays its penalty, though he never broke it, because we have done. He's paying for our fine. He's fulfilling the law for us. And once we realize this, once we realize the love of God for us, though the law remains, it's no longer our judge. It's now this helpful guide that can instruct us how we get to please the one who has loved us first. The law is no longer the cop hiding to catch us, breaking the speed limit. The law is no longer the judge sitting upon the throne, handing out verdicts. It's a helpful guide. Christ is the judge sitting upon our heart. Where the law would condemn you, Christ will accept you because of His payment. And what happens is you and I begin to forget how God looks at us through Christ and the law kind of climbs back up on the throne in our heart and begins to condemn us and begins to accuse us and begins to ask for payment. And when it does, you've all experienced this, I think, we would do well to be like Martin Luther who some 500 years ago said, Oh law, would you climb up into the kingdom of my conscience and there condemn me for sin? and would take from me the joy of my heart, which I have by faith in Christ, and drive me to desperation that I might be without hope. You have overstepped your bounds, law. Know your place. You are a guide for my behavior, but you are not Savior and Lord, so trouble me not. For I will not allow you to reign in my heart and conscience, for they are the very seat and temple of Christ, the Son of God, who is the King of righteousness and peace and my most sweet Savior. You have been saved by Him. The law continues to have a role in your life, but it is not upon the throne in your heart. That's where Christ sits. And the more we see what Christ has done for us, my friends, the more we understand the degree of which he loved us, the more our hearts are going to want to please him. This is why we come to this table. 
Why we remember what we already know He has done. We want to remember the price in which He has paid to redeem us in order that He might win our heart's affections, that we can walk out of this room inspired to follow Him in love and obedience. In fact, let's prepare our hearts even now. Our Father in Heaven, we're thankful for the work of Jesus. We're thankful for His love for us. We're thankful that the law, the good and helpful It's not our God. You are our God through Christ. We pray that You would help us to know the extent of Your love, that we would echo the prayer of the Apostle Paul, that we might know the surpassing love of Christ, the height and the depth and the length and the width, the love of God, which is infinite, that we might in our hearts be won by You. So remind us of Your love for us. Through this supper meal, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the deacons now come forward. And as the deacons come, I do want to invite all of you who are followers of Christ, identify yourselves as Christians to participate in this meal. If you're here this morning and you do not consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, uh, we would ask that you would just pass the plates by when they come as the Scripture instructs us. The Bible tells us that on the evening when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Ray, will you give thanks for the bread? Your word stays with us, and we stand assured that someday we will be with you in heaven. Be with us now. Help us to remember this time well and to take it in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.
body of Christ, broken for you. Will you raise your bread and say that to one another? The body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat. The Bible tells us in the same manner after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For when you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Bill, will you give thanks for the cup? Father, our God, our Lord, our King, we stand in awe that you have called us to be a part of you, Lord, to be a part of your family, to be your sons and your daughters. We're just in awe, Lord, and we're thankful. You've called us to this table, Lord, to commemorate the covenant, and we do, Lord. Accept our thanks for the food, for the food and for the cup, Lord, and we pray that you bless it, bless us who receive it. And by your grace and by your spirit, Lord, make us ever more conscious of your presence to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.
the blood of Christ spilled for the remission of sins. Will you raise your cup and say that to one another? The blood of Christ spilled for the remission of sins. Take and drink. Our Father, we are today and shall be increasingly and internally grateful for the work of our Lord Jesus. For when we were without hope and without any effort on our own, without any love in our heart, You came for us, Your Son died for us, that we might be Yours today and forever. Help us to reflect the love which we have for You by how we walk in a way that honors You. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.